Welcome to Podcastica Patristica, an irreverent discussion on our most revered traditions. It's an experiment in postmodern media where we talk about very old, very dead guys on the interwebs. Again, welcome to Podcastica Patristica. We are your hosts. I'm Tyler Stanley. And I'm Gerhard Steuben. We're both students at Baylor University's Truett Seminary. And we're both interested in studying patristics. In today's episode, we will explain why you should be too. We like to explain patristics by using three very important categories. People, periods, and penises. Sorry for the theological jargon, folks. These are technical categories only used by the most serious scholars of the field. So, people. Patristics is the study of key figures in ancient Christianity. These are mostly Greek and Latin writers, mostly bishops or monks, and mostly celibate men. They had to find some way to use all that time, after all. So these giants of Christian faith and practice used all their bristling, libidic energies on leading the church through eras of persecution and privilege, on defining and defending what would later become orthodoxy against those who would later be labeled heretics and writing some very dense and very compelling pieces of ancient literature. Unlike theology in our modern context, theology in the ancient church was written by priests and bishops and pastors. There were no Marcus P. Rich guy distinguished chairs of Pauline interpretation in universities, or for that matter, there were no universities. And so all the church's theology was written by men who preached and administered the sacraments and prayed with couples who'd recently experienced miscarriages. One thing that you'll find when reading the Fathers is that Christian faith and practice is at the very forefront of their minds, and even explicit in their texts, when they write on scripture and theology and God. Many find this incredibly refreshing. By periods, we mean general time frame. This time frame runs from the end of the so-called New Testament era to the Second Council of Nicaea in the 8th century. The boundaries to this time frame are blurry, since the end of the New Testament bled over into the second century, and we have some patristic works that precede some of our New Testament works. So, for instance, 1 Clement was most likely written before 2 Peter and Revelation and some others. Also, we like reading things written after the Second Council of Nicaea, so we'll throw in some episodes on people and events that happen later. So basically, we're going to talk about whatever we want to talk about and call it patristics, because... This is our podcast, and you can't confine us to your arbitrary timelines. Yeah, deal with it, you oppressive modernist bastards. Okay, Gerhard, tell them about the penises. I'm so glad you asked. Penises. You may have noticed that I said men who preached and administered the sacraments and whatever. And by that, I mean men. Almost all the hands writing all the texts were connected to penises, and we think that's a problem. Unfortunately... Early Christianity, like pretty much every other period in human history, consisted of a bunch of men arguing and making decisions about what everyone else should believe. The voices of women are few and far between. That's why it's called patristics and not matristics or parentics. The good news is that some works of our foremothers survive, and we'll make it a point to learn from them often. Ladies, we care about you too. We're both married, so not in that way, but we want your feminine voice heard. So in the future, we'll sprinkle in episodes whenever we can about important penisless peoples like Agaria and Thecla and Perpetua. 
So now that you know what we're studying, we want you to know why we're doing this podcast. And we do it because we want to make patristics great again. So how exactly are you going to make patristics great again? Listen, the church fathers love me, and people are saying a lot of things about the fathers, and they are not nice things. But we're going to be looking into it, and trust me, they're not going to see what hit them. They are not going to see it coming, I can tell you that. What exactly are you telling me? I think you know exactly what I'm telling you. And these are very nasty questions you're throwing at me, and I don't think it's very polite. But I'll tell you this much, Tertullian is a loser, and he's weak, and everyone knows it. He always loses with China, and I think Marcion is a great leader, we have a great relationship, he loves me. Oh, thank you for clearing that up. I understand completely now. We're also doing this podcast because we want to get people interested in early Christian literature and history, to show its relevance to modern theology and philosophy, and to alleviate your fears that the material is too difficult or too boring. Although, to be honest, sometimes it is. We also want to make the world a better place. On each episode, we'll look at a figure, text, or issue in the broader world of patristic studies. We're going to assume that you know nothing about the figure or text or whatever, maybe not even how to pronounce the name, and try to give you a solid introduction to the subject for the day. We hope that by the end of each episode, you'll be able to either read an ancient text for yourself or engage with some more dense introductory materials. And to help you with the reading process, we'll provide you with text and drink pairing recommendations. After years of reading ancient texts and drinking alcohol, we've developed a mature palate for both. For instance, if you're just getting started on your journey, just dipping your toes into the ancient stream of the patristic tradition, we recommend a crisp gin. As with gin, becoming acquainted with patristics may feel like you just poured straight rubbing alcohol down your throat, but trust us, it's worth it. The sweet aftertaste will leave you yearning for more. Right now, we're drinking Boodle's London Dry from Cock Russell & Company, a fitting choice since patristics was dominated by the Brits for so long. They were founded in 1845, the same year as the state of Texas and our own Baylor University. Hmm, love that burn. At this point, you might find yourself asking, why should I care about 2,000-year-old misogynistic dead guys bickering over seemingly meaningless issues? Well, you should care because your philosophy and beliefs, whether or not you're a Christian, have been shaped in some way or another by these people. If you're a Christian and want to know why we believe, or why we even care, that God is one substance with three persons, and that Jesus was one person with two natures, you should go to the source of these beliefs. If you confess the creeds, you should probably know why the creeds were made in the first place. And, because these people and their ideas so heavily influenced our world as it is today, you can be a better member of society and the church, and you can more intelligently navigate through the conversations and debates that happen today. If you're Protestant, like us, you can read John of Damascus to understand why relics and icons and Mary the Mother of God are so important to our Catholic and Orthodox brothers and sisters. Or, if you're a Catholic, you can read Augustine and see why Luther and Calvin made such a big deal over grace and works. Luther, an Augustinian monk, was deeply influenced by Augustine's monergistic understanding of grace, so much so that some ecumenically-minded scholars now think that the Reformation was one party, Protestants, championing Augustine's soteriology, and the other, Catholics, his ecclesiology. Speaking of monergism, 
Calvinists like me would do well to learn about the doctrine from the source, all holy doctor of blessed memory Augustine. It's certain that Calvin was reading Augustine and was deeply influenced by him, so if you want to understand Calvin, you need to understand the great African father. And if you're open theist, like me, you can remind your Calvinist friends that they were condemned as heretics at the Council of Orange in 529, which said, quote, We not only do not believe that any are foreordained to evil by the power of God, but even state with utter abhorrence that if there are those who want to believe so evil a thing, they are anathema. And studying patristics will help you differentiate between an ecumenical council, like Nicaea, and a non-ecumenical council, like Orange, as if it really mattered anyway. Am I right, my fellow Protestants? Agree to disagree. Nope. You should also care about patristics because it will help you navigate through all the current debates that plague Christianity. Throughout Christian history, we've never ceased debating and demanding conformity to specific positions on extremely complex issues. In the third century, the debate centered around the nature of Christ. What does it mean for Jesus to be divine? How do we reconcile this with the fact that he was human? Some said that Jesus was completely human, but his mind was the divine word of God. Some said the same thing about his will. Those who became known as Orthodox in the West said that we must say Jesus was one person with two natures, completely divine and completely human. The Church of the East looked at the debates going on in the West and said, you guys are all trying to say the same thing. Quit talking past each other and just serve God. And it turns out the Easterners were mostly right. Everyone wanted to affirm the same thing. Jesus, the human, is Yahweh in the flesh. But they were so blinded by the heat of the argument that they spent more time accusing their opponents than trying to understand what they actually said. As C.S. Lewis says in an introduction to Athanasius's On the Incarnation, quote, We are all rightly distressed, and ashamed also, at the divisions of Christendom. But those who have always lived within the Christian fold may be too easily dispirited by them. They are bad, but such people do not know what it looks like from without. Seen from there, what is left intact, despite all the divisions, still appears, as it truly is, an immensely formidable unity. So in reading the fathers, we see how they failed to listen to their opponents. We see how they failed to have nuanced conversations about difficult issues. We see how blind they were to the fact that, even though they disagreed on the particulars of some obscure doctrines, they shared a common faith with their opponents. And we see that quite often the issues that caused the most controversy were ultimately not worth fighting about, or at least they were not worth dividing the church. And once we step outside of our own world, outside of our own 21st century context, once we see these tendencies in others, we can see them in ourselves. If even our most revered heroes of the faith can be so uncharitable and misrepresent the views of their opponents just because they wanted to win an argument, then it can certainly happen to us. The goal, then, is to be a better person, to learn what we can from everyone, and to find common ground in a common faith, or at least in a common humanity, despite the differences in how we express that faith. Also, it's important to remember that patristics is not only an important field of study for Christian theology and history, but it is also an undertapped source for the study of classics. In the same way that we might read Paul Tillich or Soren Kierkegaard to learn about existentialism, we should read Augustine as an heir of Platonism, 
Origen as an ancient idealist, and Polycarp as an example of Socratic or Stoic masculinity. We learn not only more about the fathers by reading them as members of these philosophical schools, but also more about the philosophical schools themselves by seeing how the ideas get translated into a particular ancient religion. Getting a bit more down to earth, we learn quite a bit about what ancient Greco-Roman society thought about slavery, women, sex, money, rhetoric, and religion from the Christian fathers. If you care about classics, then you should care about patristics. And, unlike The Prayer of Jabez, or Heaven is for Real, or books written by Duck Dynasty, these books were not forgotten after two years. They were so influential that they've lasted nearly 2,000 years. So if you want to read something life-changing, read something that literally changed history, something that shaped the beliefs and practices of the Christian church and consequently the entire world. As Gerhard mentioned a moment ago, these ancient writers were bishops and monks. They weren't academic stiffs in ivory towers. They wrote for the church to which they'd given their entire lives. You should read these works in order to keep them from getting stuck in academic purgatory where ideas go to die. If it's only circulated among academics, it will not transform and inform the church, which is what actually matters. Finally, Patristics is important because Christianity is a historical religion. Christianity's central claim is that there was a specific Jew in a specific place at a specific time in human history who did a specific thing and changed the world forever. Christianity is not a set of timeless truths and principles, but the reporting of a particular historical event. We preach Christ crucified, said Paul, and preach he did. Paul preached the Christ event all over the place. According to Acts 18, Paul preached in Corinth for a year and a half before moving on to the next city. That next city was Ephesus, and Paul taught there for two years. I don't know about you, but I generally get to know how my pastors and teachers and mentors think after two years. After years of study under Paul, one might even say that those Christians became Paul. And so if you or I wanted to know what Paul thought on a particular issue, an issue that he didn't write about in his letters, it might not be a bad idea to go ask his disciples in Corinth or Ephesus, or the disciples of his disciples, or the disciples of the disciples of his disciples. In a word, church tradition. Now, before we close, we want to give you some simple tips on how to begin reading in patristics. First, you need to know a bit about translations. The trade-off is going to be readability versus price. Most of the texts we're going to be talking about on this podcast will be available somewhere on the magical interwebs for free, but they're often in stilted English and are a bit more difficult to read. But they're free, so that's nice. Or if you want, you can buy newer translations in easier, more compelling English, and you'll probably understand and enjoy the texts a bit more. But the operative word in that sentence was buy. If you're on limited budgets like us, you'd probably rather put in a bit of extra effort than dropping your last bit of precious mammon on a newer translation. On the free side, check out Christian Classics Ethereal Library, ccel.org, a site from Calvin College that's digitized tons of out-of-copyright translations of ancient and not-so-ancient texts. You can find all of Blessed St. Philip Schaff's very helpful anti- and post-Nicene father sets there. Or, on the print side, Penguin puts out some very great, very readable translations, as does Gorgeous Press's Fathers of the Church series. We'll do our best to find you some good resources, both free and print, 
for each episode of the podcast, and we'll be posting those on the website. Secondly, you should have a good broad strokes history of the early church. Sometimes these writings can be difficult to understand because so much of it depends on the backstory, the historical setting. And no one does a better job of that than Justo Gonzalez. His two-volume work, The Story of Christianity, is easy to read and very affordable. The first volume tells the story of Christianity from the patristics to the Protestant Reformation, and the second picks up the story from the Reformation and finishes in the modern era. Unfortunately, he doesn't get to discuss Eastern Christianity at any depth, so if you're interested in that, we would recommend Philip Jenkins's The Lost History of Christianity. Jenkins, a professor at our own Baylor University, traces the forgotten Eastern Church's development from Edessa on, focusing quite a bit on the Eastern Church's early interactions with Islam. It's very readable, very short book that can help you get your bearings on the little-known world of Syriac and Arabic-speaking Christianity. And there are so many books out there that it's hard to figure out whether they're any good. So we'll do the hard work for you by posting the sources we use for each episode on our website. Join us next time for a discussion over the Didache, an incredibly important, incredibly early text from the Apostolic Fathers. The Didache, whose full name is The Teaching of the Lord to the Gentiles by the Twelve Apostles, is a relatively short text and one which styles itself as a distillation of the apostolic teaching. In that episode, we'll talk about how the early church baptized, how they performed the Eucharist, what they thought about traveling prophetic types, and maybe even what they thought about abortion. And, of course, how the world will end. So now that you know a bit more about patristics and how you can get involved in the conversation, we'll let you go for now. But be sure to check out our website, podcasticapatristica.com, where you can find out how to access the materials we use for the podcast. You can also find a contact form there, which you can use to send us questions or make suggestions on future episodes. So in the words of Barnabas, farewell, children of love and peace. May the Lord of glory and all grace be with your spirit.